passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. It's, uh, it's great to be with you as we continue our sermon series, uh, Broken Vessels, looking at various figures from the Bible and how God uses them to accomplish His purposes in the world, and probably most importantly and significantly, how God uses them in spite of their imperfections. And I think it's important for us to remember that each of us, no matter our past, no matter the struggles that we face today and our present, we can be used as a conduit of God's grace to those who are around us. And I think the operative word there is the word can. Because this isn't guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that God will use us for those who are around us. To be a conduit of God's grace to others in the world, it means that we have to take steps of obedience. It means that we have to take steps that are oftentimes painful, uh, hard, challenging steps. And as I alluded to earlier this morning, that's certainly what we see in the life of Esther. The story of Esther actually makes it abundantly clear that many times it's a whole lot easier for us to take a different path. It's a whole lot easier for us to not walk in obedience, to just do what it takes to blend in and to live like everyone else out there. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the story of Esther is so compelling for us today. Because Esther, even though we are separated by thousands of miles and thousands of years, is actually in a context that is relatively similar to our own. Esther is a story of a Jewish girl in the midst of a hostile empire and a culture that stands against the values of her faith. And yet, surprisingly, The story of Esther doesn't start with this blazing example picture of faith, but rather compromise. Esther and her cousin Mordecai actually have a whole lot more in common with the values of Persia than they do differences from the Persian culture. And I think all too often that's where we find ourselves Today, there might be areas of our lives, indeed there are areas of our lives where we say, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, I'm not going to blend in or be like the culture in this area, and yet there are just as many areas in our lives where our priorities are all too often aligned with the culture around us, that our priorities are indistinguishable from the culture around us. We might stand firm on issues of sexual ethics, And yet we have a whole lot in common with our culture when it comes to its fascination with entertainment and with sports especially, money, consumerism, the lure of power, and the list could go on and on and on of the things that we have in common with our culture rather than what is different from our culture. It's in this context that I think Esther is so very helpful for us because oftentimes when we talk about how do we live in an increasingly pagan and hostile world, a lot of times we'll run to the book of Daniel. And Daniel is an excellent example of how to live in a pagan world. 
Daniel tells us the story about a man who is a paragon of faith, finding himself in the midst of a pagan empire, and yet he refuses to bend the knee to cultural stuff that's happening in his day. He's this paragon of faith. He'd rather go to the lion's den than bend the knee. And yet the sobering reality is, all too often, we are not Daniel. We don't have very much in common with Daniel. Mike Cosper, in his book, Faith Among the Faithless, points out the problem of using Daniel as our role model for cultural engagement today. It's a relatively lengthy quote, but I think it's really important for us. He says this, There's a problem with looking to Daniel. Most of us aren't a Daniel. As much as we recognize that our culture is in decline, we also kind of like it. Christians, in general, consume as much mass media and are as consumeristic, are as obsessed with social media as the rest of the world. Esther, in contrast, is disconnected from a heritage of faith. She's out of touch with the practices that marked her people as distinct from the surrounding world, and yet she nonetheless finds a way back to her identity as one of God's people, and she is someone who might illustrate a path forward for the rest of us. Esther's story is an invitation to those whose faith, convictions, and morality are less than they wish they were. Esther is a crucial book for us because as we consider her life of compromise, if we are willing to listen, we actually see a mirror there that shows us all of the ways that we have bought into similarly deceitful lies from our culture today. Now, you might find yourself thinking, well, that's, that's not me. I haven't compromised in some areas of your life. That, that might be true. And yet, at the same time, each of us almost certainly has priorities that have far more in common with the world than, than the way of Jesus. What we're going to see for Esther is that it is impossible for us when we grow up in Persia, even a great nation like the United States, to not have our priorities shaped, at least in some way, by a culture that is different to or indifferent to, sometimes even antithetical to the way of God. How might God awaken us to this truth? How might he call us to a greater level of obedience? That's the lens that we're going to look at at the story of Esther through this morning. How does God use her as a conduit of his grace for his people in spite of all of her imperfections, all of her compromise. How does God still commit to using her? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to consider the story of Esther and three general movements. Uh, We're actually going to look at the entire book of Esther this morning. If you're wondering how on earth we're going to make it through in the next 40 minutes, I have no idea. should be fun. Uh, but we'll, we'll go ahead and pray. Um, not for that necessarily, but we'll just pray uh, in general for God's presence to be with us. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you that you use it to transform your people. We trust that you will do just that, as you have done through countless generations, that you might do so this morning. God, we ask that you would help us to see through the story of Esther that your spirit especially doing refining and purifying work. It might be painful and risky, but it's always worth it. God, we ask that you would make us into a people who live lives that are defined not primarily by the cultural tastes around us, but rather by your priorities and your passions. 
We ask that you would help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the backstory of the book of Esther is actually quite important for us to understand what's happening in this book. Esther opens by telling us a little bit about the year and the location. It takes place in the year 483 BC in the wintertime capital of functionally the world. It's in this place called Susa, which is the wintertime capital of the Persian Empire. Persia has been the dominant empire in the world for the last 75 years. Ahasuerus, which is a really fun name to say, and just a a little free bit of information here. Uh, Ahasuerus, normally known, more commonly known as Xerxes. Ahasuerus actually is just this pun that means headache. So it's King Headache, if you were wondering. It's actually a headache trying to say his name over and over again. Uh, Ahasuerus, he rules over this huge swath of the known world from northern Africa all the way to modern-day India. Now, significantly, 483 BC, where our story starts and takes place, it takes place about 50 years after the people of Israel were allowed to return from exile, scattered across the known world. They were allowed to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And by this point, the temple has been rebuilt. We might say, well, why exactly does that matter? Well, it actually reminds us that the people that we are dealing with have chosen to remain in Persia. They've chosen to remain in exile rather than returning to the promised land, rather than placing their hope in the promises of God and returning to Jerusalem. They instead choose to remain in the comforts of exile. Another way of putting it is 50 years before the story of Esther, basically all the people who take their faith seriously packed up and moved home. And so the people that we're dealing with now in Susa, the people who are left, might best be described as those people who are lukewarm. Now, they haven't, they haven't rejected their Jewish heritage but they also haven't rejected the benefits of living in a pagan empire either. And it's in that context that Esther 1 opens, and it tells us about the greatness of this Persian king, Ahasuerus, the greatness of his empire. It opens actually by telling us that Ahasuerus throws a six-month-long party for the, for the leaders of his far-flung empire. Almost certainly, uh, this does two things. First, he's, he's trying to drum up support for his upcoming invasion of Greece. If you're a world history buff, between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, there's this battle between the Persians and the Greeks called the Battle of Thermopylae, where Xerxes, this king, is actually soundly defeated by a much smaller Greek force as he attempts to take over Greece. Now, Ahasuerus is is incredibly vain and concerned with his own glory. The message of Esther chapter 1 makes that very clear. That's one of the reasons why he throws this extravagant party. It says this in verses 3 and 4. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So the purpose here of Ahasuerus' party, as the book of Esther opens, is for people to be impressed with him. So if you want people to be impressed with you, throw a 180-long-day party. 
And after this party, Ahasuerus actually decides to throw a second party. After every one of his his leaders in his empire has gone home, he says, you know what, I'm going to throw another party for the common people of Susa. They've they've been watching this party for the last six months. We're going to let them have a party as well. The wine flows freely. At one point, while he's raving drunk, he actually issues an edict as a way to, uh, or sorry, not issuing an edict. Uh, He just decides, you know what, I'm going to show my glory, my greatness by forcing his queen to come out in front of everyone. And while the text doesn't say exactly what that means, you can probably read in between the lines of what does it mean for his wife to come out and show her beauty to everyone. Now, shockingly, this queen says no. And Xerxes, his attempt to show his power and glory by displaying one of his wives, it actually backfires him on him. And so in order to save face, Ahasuerus sends out this empire-wide edict saying, hey, you know what, Vashti's insolence for her, or her punishment for her insolence here, she's never going to be able to come before me again. And that'll really show everyone who's really in charge. At any rate, after this edict, Ahasuerus heads off to Greece for a couple years, as I mentioned earlier. He's defeated by the Greeks. And he returns to his capital city, Susa, at some point in the year 480 BC. He's been embarrassed multiple times, first by his wife and then by the Greeks. And that's where the story of Esther 2 picks up about three years after the party of Esther 1. Now, Esther 2 opens with another edict from this insecure king. In order to prove his dominance, he demands that all the beautiful young virgins will be added to his harem. And those who make the cut, he will sleep with. And the ones that he finds to be the most appealing, she will be his new queen. And if you're thinking, man, Xerxes sounds like a terrible person, you're following along. You're picking up what the book of Esther is trying to describe him as. Now, it's at this point in Esther chapter 2 that we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, as well as her adoptive father after her parents had died. Now, significantly, when we are introduced to Mordecai, just about every single thing that we are told in Esther chapter 2 gives us a troubling picture of him. It's a picture of spiritual compromise when we are introduced to Mordecai. It says this in verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now consider first Mordecai's name here. Mordecai may be a Jewish name today, but it's only because of this man. Mordecai is actually an homage to the Babylonian god Marduk. And now many Jews in exile were forced to take on pagan names like Daniel and his three friends and even Esther in this chapter. In each of those examples, we are actually told what their Jewish name is as well. Except for Mordecai. We're never told what his Jewish name is. Perhaps more significantly, in verse 5, we're also told that he doesn't just live in Susa, but he lives in Susa the citadel, the heart of Persian politics. Susa was this massive city, and in the heart of the city was where things happened, the citadel, where the the politics and the power took place. And, And if you were someone who lived in the citadel, you were a mover and shaker in that day. 
And so for us to be introduced here to Mordecai, we see this man who is named after a pagan god who finds himself in the heart of Persian power, is a man who is bought into the culture of Persia. This is all too clear when we see his instructions to Esther when she's abducted as a part of Xerxes' harem expansion plan. Notice what he says in verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Why? For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, it would have been impossible to resist Xerxes' decree. If Xerxes asks you to join his harem, you don't get to say no. But Mordecai's insistence here that Esther hide her Jewishness reveals that he wants her to play the part. Now, undoubtedly, there's a part of this here that he wants her to hide her Jewishness in order to save her life. But at the same time, there's no real reason to suggest or suspect that that Ahasuerus would have killed Esther for being Jewish. It seems more likely that Mordecai wanted to increase her chances of winning the crown and by extension by winning power. Now, it's in the same vein of cultural compromise that we catch when we're introduced to Esther just a few verses later. There's a number of parallels between Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel is is forced as this exile from Israel to do certain things, and Esther chapter 2, where, again, this woman, this Jewish woman living in exile is forced to do certain things. Number of parallels. Daniel chapter 1, we see Daniel is taken against his well, put in in a separated group, and is forced forced to eat the king's food. Esther chapter 2, we have this Jewish woman who is forced against her will, taken into this separate group of people and is forced to eat the king's food. The parallels make the different response between Daniel and Esther all the more significant. Notice what Daniel did. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel finds himself in this spot where he is, he's going to have to compromise his faith, and he asks, he pleads, hey, please don't let me do this. My faith means too much for me to eat the king's food, which would have been breaking the purity laws of the Old Testament. Then we get to Esther chapter 2. And Esther pleased him, the chief eunuch, and won his favor. And the chief eunuch quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. So Esther finds herself in a very similar spot as Daniel, and yet rather than relying on the Lord and and for God to come through, which is what Daniel does, and there's this moment of, of just outstanding faith from Daniel and his friends, instead Esther finds herself in a place where she does whatever the chief eunuch asks, and she begins to eat this pagan food. Now, after a year of pagan preparation, Esther is at last brought before Ahasuerus, and notice what she asks for. When the turn came for Esther, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
So Esther's plan, Mordecai's plan, actually works. Ahasuerus is infatuated with her. And Ahasuerus chooses her to be his queen. And there's another time jump between chapter 2 and chapter 3, about five years. And over the course of the next five years, before we get to Esther chapter 3, Esther hides her Jewish heritage, which means that she would have had to live like a pagan. She would have had to blend into the Persian culture. She would have had to completely ignore the law of Moses, the Old Testament laws governing what you were to eat, what you were not to eat, laws that were to set apart the people of Israel from those who were around them. For five years, that's exactly what Esther does. Now, just let's pause for a moment and consider what we might learn from the beginning of Esther's story here. I think it's pretty clear Esther is a warning. Esther warns us of how easy it is to compromise with the world's priorities and the world's values. It's interesting that Esther, at least in this point of the story, is the model picture of a Persian queen. She does exactly what she is told. She hides her connection to the people of God, and she breaks God's law in doing so. She is everything that Xerxes wants in a queen. She's a far better Persian queen than Vashti was. Now, I think the most troubling thing of all is the text doesn't seem to indicate that Mordecai and Esther had any qualms with this approach. There was no heart check. There's no resolve, like what we see from Daniel and his friends saying, you know what, we we refuse to bend the knee. Instead, what we see from Esther and from Mordecai is almost this resigned sense of, well, this is just what you have to do when you live in Persia. And I wonder how often we're the same. How often the values of our culture are considered to be unquestioned good by us today. You know, we don't worship pagan gods like they did in Persia thousands of years ago, but we have our own pantheon of gods. Gods that we also worship. Chief among the gods that we worship is the god of self that we have the right to pursue our own happiness and whatever we want. How many of us, while we're pursuing the values of this false God, use that as the lens through which we make all of the decisions in life, whether it is our time or our finances or our activities, whatever it might be. When we are born and raised in Susa, like Mordecai and Esther, The values of Persia are second nature. The same thing is true for us today in our modern day Susa too. So don't miss the message of Esther here. It is so easy to compromise with the world's priorities and values, especially when you grow up in the midst of them. The story continues, as I mentioned, five years later, Esther chapter three picks up. 
Before that, we're given a brief note at the end of Esther chapter 2 about Mordecai uncovering this plot against Ahasuerus's life. He saves Ahasuerus's life. That's going to come up later. At any rate, five years later, um, Esther chapter 3 opens up. He, Esther has been the queen for five years now. Ahasuerus promotes a man named Haman to be his second in command in his empire. Now, significantly, Mordecai, who has no problem bending the knee and bowing to pagan Ahasuerus, by the way, refuses to bow to Haman. We're actually told why in verse 4 of chapter 3. We see that Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman because Mordecai is a Jew. And I say, well, what exactly does that mean? Why does that matter so much? The answer is actually found in the opening words of Esther chapter 3. Notice what it says in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, this is a moment of spiritual awakening for Mordecai. And it all hinges here on the word Agagite, what we see in verse 1. Haman is an Agagite. So you might say, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that he's a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. We met Agag in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul is called to wipe out the Amalekites as a part of God's judgment upon them for their wickedness, including their king Agag. And instead of listening to God, Saul ignores him and decides to do what he thinks is best. So Haman is actually a descendant of that king. Did you notice the words of Esther chapter 2, verse 5, when we were introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Kish, the father of Saul. Mordecai is a distant relative of King Saul. Apparently, Mordecai, who has no qualms with bending the knee and ignoring his heritage to this point, cannot tolerate bending the knee to Haman. And at last, he takes a stand because he remembers the stories of his ancestors concerning the Amalekites. And so, in obedience to the Lord, he refuses to bend his knee and bow to this Amalekite. Now, if Ahasuerus was vain and concerned with his own glory, if possible, Haman is even more so. Mordecai and his refusal to bow to him incenses him, and so he seeks revenge not only on Mordecai, but on committing, all, committing genocide against all of Mordecai's people through this irrevocable act or edict that takes place or will take place 10 months later. And when we pick up in Esther chapter 4, we actually find Esther is in a crisis moment. Esther actually isn't aware of the edict at first. Again, probably gives us some insight into her life. At the end of chapter 3, we're told that all of Susa is thrown into confusion because of this edict. Meanwhile, Esther has no idea about this edict. Esther's decisive moment in her life is found in Esther chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. Mordecai asks her to go before the king in order to stop this decree, but Esther is hesitant, and she's hesitant for a good reason. To go before the king without being summoned is actually to invite death. Notice what 
verse 11 says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther hasn't seen the king for a month. And again, it's, it's all but guaranteed the king has not been alone for those 30 days. He's got a whole harem. He's been with women from his harem. Who's to say that Esther hasn't fallen out of favor? It's been 30 days. Unless Xerxes shows her mercy, then Mordecai is asking her to go to her death. Verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's response here is is fascinating. It's very telling because he expresses a confidence in God's commitment to his people something that was completely absent in Esther chapter 2. He is completely confident that God will deliver his people with or without Esther's help, and he has no basis for claiming this confidence other than the promises of God to his people throughout the Old Testament. Mordecai says and is confident in the fact that, that God's people will be safe. The question is not about God's people. The question is about Esther. And so in this defining moment, Esther has to decide. If she decides to hide her identity and allow the people of Israel to be slaughtered, then her conversion to the pagan people of Persia will be complete. She'll no longer be living these two lives. She will be a complete Persian, a pagan through and through. If she voluntarily cuts herself off from the people of God, then she will also cut herself off from the promises of God. And God will save his people. God is committed to delivering his people. But that won't include Esther if she's not one of God's people. You see, Mordecai reaches this defining moment of faith when he refuses to bow to an Amalekite, and now Esther reaches this defining moment of faith. Is she going to fully assimilate to pagan culture, or is she going to declare her allegiance to the God of Israel? Then then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In the end, Esther realizes that she cannot continue to live two lives. She cannot continue to embrace this culture on the outside while feigning some sort of connection to the God of Israel on the inside. She has to choose the God of Israel or the gods of Persia. And in the end, she chooses the God of Israel even if it means her death. 
As one pastor says, it's better to die being obedient than it is to live in disobedience. And here we catch another crucial reminder from Esther. Esther reminds us that our obedience is ultimately a question of our allegiance. Obedience in our lives is ultimately a question of allegiance. Your obedience or your lack thereof to the Lord God reveals who ultimately holds your allegiance. Jesus actually says as much to his disciples. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Have you, like Esther, compromised with culture? With the God of whatever makes me feel good? Just as Mordecai says to Esther, so also the Holy Spirit says to each of us this morning, we cannot continue to play both sides. 1 John reminds us, James reminds us, that there is this enmity toward God when we are in love with the world. Obedience is ultimately a question of allegiance. Where does your allegiance lie? With the Lord Jesus? Or with the reigning God of our culture and the pleasures of self? I mentioned that Esther 4 is is the defining moment of Esther's life. Because whatever happens next, we can be assured that Esther has declared her allegiance to the God of Israel. The story could end there, and it would be a happy ending. And yet, while this is the defining moment in Esther's life, it's not the defining moment in the book of Esther. In fact, I would argue that even though Esther has a, a large part to play in the rest of the book, she actually fades into the background and the main character takes center stage in the rest of the narrative. Esther chapter 5 tells us that she comes before the king after three days of fasting. There's this powerful and fascinating contrast here between Esther's approach in Esther chapter 2 when she goes before the king and Esther chapter 5 when she comes before the king again. She comes before the king after three days of fasting. She won Xerxes' affection years earlier through her beauty by doing everything that the chief eunuch said. And now she comes before the king frail and sickly because she hasn't had food or water for three days. It's a very clear declaration of her need for the Lord to come through for her rather than relying on her own ability, rather than relying on the wisdom of the pagan culture as in Esther chapter 2. And the Lord comes through for her. Ahasuerus allows her into his presence. And Esther is, is incredibly tactful. Lord willing, I'd love to preach through the book of Esther one day instead of just in one, and over the course of two months rather than just in one, one day. We see that Ahasuerus actually asks Esther to name her request up to half of his, uh, of his kingdom. She actually doesn't make known that request. Instead, offer, invites him to a banquet and then to another banquet. She's, she's actually putting him in her debt. This man who is concerned with his own glory has committed over the course of chapter 5 three times 
publicly to doing what Esther has asked. Now, significantly, in each of these banquets that Esther invites him to, Haman is invited to both. And yet Haman, what starts as this delight and being the only person beside the king that is invited to these banquets, he, he cannot stop dwelling on the disgrace that Mordecai shows him by refusing to bow. And so he comforts himself that night at the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, by, uh, by brainstorming with his family how he can catch his revenge upon Mordecai. And he decides to build a 75-foot stake on which he's going to impale Mordecai the next day. It's not enough to kill him in the edict. He actually wants to humiliate him now. And then we get to the key moment in the entire book, the beginning of chapter six. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You pick up what Esther's, the book of Esther is telling us here? For some reason, the king can't sleep. We're not told why. There's no God-sent dreams like in Daniel. It's just a guy who can't sleep. And for some reason, this man who has the world at his fingertips, who has no qualms with stealing women out of their homes to be joined to his harem, he has a whole harem at his disposal. And he doesn't ask for a woman or women from his harem to come and join him while he can't sleep. He doesn't ask for entertainers to come out of bed and perform a play for him. Instead, for some reason, he chooses to listen to court records. And it just so happens that one of the stories that is read to him is about Mordecai. And when he hears this story about Mordecai saving his life, Ahasuerus asks, how did we reward him? This was a really important question for the Persian kings in that day because they took loyalty from their subjects very seriously. They lavishly rewarded those who helped them. It pays to be on the good side of the Persian king. And yet, shockingly, a massive oversight for some reason. Nothing had been done to reward Mordecai. You should read Esther chapter 6 sometime. It is comical. The long and short of it is Mordecai has honored Haman, who's on his way to ask Xerxes early in the morning while Xerxes can't sleep. He's asking him for permission to kill Mordecai, is forced to honor Mordecai instead. And we see this massive reversal of fortunes of Haman and Mordecai in Esther chapter 6, ultimately paving the way for Esther chapter 7. Xerxes is receptive to the request of Esther because of what takes place in Esther chapter 6. Do you catch the significance of what's taking place here? If you read through the book of Esther, you will notice that the name of God is not mentioned a single time. 
And yet, don't for a second think that that means that God is not at work. I mentioned that after Esther 4, Esther takes backstage to the main character of the book. The main character's name is mentioned once. And yet, it's the Lord who saves his people by working in imperceptible ways for their good. This is a crucial lesson for us to learn. Esther reminds us that God regularly uses the mundane, not just the miraculous, but the mundane for the good of his people. God's providence, his purposeful sovereignty that he does everything with a purpose reminds us that he can use mundane things for the good of his people. He can use a sleepless night of a king to be the defining moment in saving his people. We read the Bible and we can be tempted to read the stories of, of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, the miracles of Jesus, the early church, and say faith would be so much easier if God worked like that today. One, I'm skeptical to that approach, uh, that faith would actually be easier. You read the beginning of Mark chapter 8, and that seems to be the case. But the reality is that God so much more often works like he does in Esther for the good of his people, committed to his people, than through lightning and thunder like he does in the Exodus. Have you ever considered that that's true of your life? Esther, as you read it, should instill a confidence within every single one of us that God is at work, even in the mundane of your life, for the good of his people. You might not grasp it, but that doesn't mean that God's not at work. God is utterly committed to the good of his people. And he has millions of ways that he will use his providence, including sleepless nights, for the good of his people. And that includes you. The rest of the book of Esther is history. Esther 7, Haman's plot is exposed. He's put to death. Shockingly, Ahasuerus actually does nothing with this decree of genocide. And so Esther is actually forced to take her life in her own hands again in Esther chapter 8. This time Ahasuerus listens. Mordecai and Esther actually issue a counter edict allowing the Jewish people to defend themselves against their enemies. And months later, this, this moment where the Jewish people were to face extinction, they not only don't face extinction, but they actually experience more peace than they ever have in exile because they defeat their enemies. And you'd think that the book of Esther would actually end with that, but it, but it actually ends with the institution of this Jewish holiday called Purim, this celebration, this remembering of how God has delivered his people. There's so much more we could say about Esther as a book, as a whole, including the significance of this new holiday, but what about Esther the person? What can we learn from Esther as a person? This woman who like so many of us, finds herself torn between allegiance to her God and the comforts of a world she grew up in. 
You know, if we were to land on just one thing, I, th I think it would be this. Esther reminds us of God's unwavering grace for those who have abandoned him. The story of Esther's life is the story of God's unwavering grace for people like her and all too often like us who have abandoned him. Now, you might think abandon is a pretty strong word, and, and you might have a point there. There's not this defining moment in Esther where she turns her back on the things of God in order to fit in with the culture of Persia. As far as we know, she grows up in Susa. The cultural attractions of her empire were just a part of her from the very beginning. If anything, her abandonment or assimilation comes over the course of a lifetime through a thousand choices, many of them forced upon her. The good news of Esther is that God doesn't abandon her. Instead, he is unwavering in her, his grace toward her. I find it remarkable how many similarities there are between the story of Esther and in Luke chapter 15, the story of the younger brother and the prodigal son. See, just like the prodigal son, Esther is steeped in a culture that gives no thought to the things of God. And yet, just like the prodigal son, Esther is welcomed back into the fold of God's people. Perhaps most importantly, we see that Esther's cultural compromise didn't disqualify her from being used in incredible ways by the Lord. You know, in a similar way, if you're a bit too in love with the idea of ease and leisure and comfort in this culture, if you care a little bit too much about your right to the good life, if decisions about your finances and free time, your weekends, your work, all of those center around what I want rather than how I can serve the Lord and bring him glory, the good news of Esther is that God's unwavering grace remains. God's in the business of using broken vessels as conduits for his grace. That's true of Esther, and that can be true of us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. What an incredible gift. God, we ask that your spirit would be at work now, revealing to us the idols of our culture that have a hold on our own hearts. Help us to be a, a people who today, this day, even as we sang earlier, saying, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, would not turn back to the things of this world. But we would cling to the cross for your glory and for our good. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.